Hey, I'm George Gale, and this is The Next Move, where we're talking with organizers about the craft of organizing. Today's guest is Stefan Roberson, an organizer's organizer, and he's seen it all. I tell young organizers, you have not chosen the fastest path to power. You could build power for yourself more quickly if you pursued elected office or became a social media star. You've chosen to do something else, to build the power of many other people and with many other people. It's simply a different thing. Activism is in vogue these days, and we're better for it. But let's not mistake activism for organizing. An activist is active, maybe even leads, in the fight for social change. An organizer is developing the power and the potential of others within that fight, often one by one, sometimes many at a time. Today's guest, Stefan Roberson, is a developer of people. Stefan's path started with United Farm Workers, then with East Brooklyn Congregations and United Power and Action for Justice, both projects of the Industrial Areas Foundation, then Free SEIU, and most recently, Community Voices Heard, a member organization of People's Action. Here's the conversation. So I got asked, like, how did you find organizing? Well, that's a long story, George. Uh, when told by a 70-year-old man, uh, there's a lot of history. Uh, I mean, I was born at a time when lots was going on in this country. I was born in 1951, and uh, that takes us into deep Jim Crow and into a lot of death and uh, a lot of uh, disappearance of heroes and heroines, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, John F. Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy. Uh, so many people were killed at the time I was going into adolescence. And I was in a school system that was uh, mostly white. And uh, I was the son of service workers and domestic workers. We were a little bit below, you know, part of the lower part of the working class in my community. And around all those changes that were going on in our country at the time, all so much uh, racial uh, hatred, trying to figure it out, not knowing as a kid who I was in terms of, you know, am I supposed to be inferior to the white kids I went to school with? Or should I believe that? Or am I more what my parents told me I was, which was a unique, strong kid that they loved and thought could be something somebody so is in the midst of all that and trying to figure it out and uh not having the answers as a 13 14 15 year old kid and the love of my deacon uh deacon in my church who who invested in me deacon johnson love of uh mr kennedy uh my sixth grade teacher i think that's that's what propelled me into trying to get to the bottom of this this uncertainty uh, as a human being, this anger, this uh, kind of just being uh, adrift, shall we say. Those people helped me to center myself more and, and realize that I could be somebody. So what happened was that I was reading a book at the age of mm -hmm. about, probably about 17 or 18, called Soul on Ice by uh, mm -hmm. Eldridge Cleaver. Yeah. And in it, there was a question asked of what would you die for? And that was such a jarring question for me 
at that age what the hell would i die for do i you know take anything in life that seriously do i you know, and and then all these deaths were occurring and all this stuff I said god you know i got to got to get in touch with who i am and i got to become somebody so the first time i i encountered organizing and got put to the test was uh when i encountered a picket line in front of a supermarket of all things uh, that a, a white friend of mine who's today still my best friend uh, Norbert Harold said come on Stefan we're gonna go to a picket line what the hell a picket line what the hell in front of a supermarket what the hell what's going on here Nutley New Jersey what so I went to this picket line I said holy shit we're in it there people don't like us here and and with we're we're standing up for this group of people these farm workers and so that's when I got radicalized and and probably I think I was arrested also for loud and lewd behavior and inciting a riot for being on a picket line so 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 that radicalized me pretty quick i had to figure out what the hell am i doing on this line did i really know what i was getting myself into and the the end of this long story is i came off of that picket line and went and organized with a a good friend of mine who was much better at this my first house meeting of Mm. all the kids in my neighborhood to talk about the farm workers and to talk about getting black history books into the library at the school, uh, which was unheard of. And uh, yeah, he got them together and I was the big star in front of the meeting doing all the talking (laughs) and flapping my gums. And I said, oh shit, now what do I do? Yeah. (laughs) So it was out of that question (laughs) came, damn. I guess I'd better do something with with all this attention and all these kids, you know, looking at, you know, listening to me for the first time. And uh, so I organized another picket line uh, of them in front of the public library in Westwood, New Jersey. So uh, that was my first, you know, 19 year old kind of, you know, coming into my own, trying to figure out who I was, trying to Mm -hmm. figure out the world I was in having no answers other than the fact that it felt pretty good to be in front of those 25 kids who wanted to be a part of changing the way things were in our little town of 15,000 people. So that was my first foray, George. I wish it was more romantic, but that was it. No, that's (laughs) Wow. There's a lot in there. Um, And I feel like Half of organizing is ending up in moments where you're like, now what do I do? I mean, that kind of <laughs> describes right. half of it. Like, what happens next for you with the farm workers? Oh, boy. So it went from there to say, shit, you know, I was, I was also taken, taken with this, this thing that, that I was emerging as this, this kind of a leader. But I didn't know how to organize. I mean, I was I was part of the Black Panther Party and what they were doing in New Brunswick, New Jersey. But I mean, it was mostly show, to be honest. We didn't really organize much. I mean, we organized the free breakfast programs and, you know, service elements in the community. And we were kind of protectors. But I wouldn't have called that organizing. And so to me, the farm workers, when they put up these picket lines, uh, to me, that represented somebody knew what they were doing. <laughs> I mean, 
they actually knew what they must have known. Well, that's what I was thinking at mm-hmm. that age, uh, because they're doing it all over the country and they're doing it in several neighborhoods in New Jersey, not just like one place. Right. And they're doing it week after week after week. So I just became very curious about how do you do that? You know, how would you do that to sustain that kind of energy uh, over a very needed and deep kind of concern for the people that picked our fruit who were black and who were Latino? So it kind of fit, you know, what I was trying to get at. And so I said, basically, as a 19 year, I said, well, you know, I got time on my hands. I left school because I got so drunk on how to become a a better organizer. (laughs) And I was learning left and right from Chavez and company. Uh, I wasn't getting any kind of stimulation like that in college. So that's what was next. I mean, I just dove in. I joined a boycott house in Montclair, New Jersey. And uh, that's where we all came together and lived. People who wanted to work for the boycott. Yeah, I just kept learning. I kept growing. And I kept relating outside of my own culture and, and economic class. And that really, really invigorated me. I met some really good people along the way, from farm workers down to people who were like me. Most of those were white, though. But mm. the farm workers weren't. The farm workers were blacks and Latinos who came off the job you know, to work for $5 a week in room and board, just like me, to build their struggle and to build their organization. They came from LA, they came from Florida, they came from Canada, they came from so many places to work in a setting. Some, you know, in Cleveland, in Jersey City, in, you know, New York City, every, all over the country, Detroit, to shut down these grapes. And uh, that really invigorated me. And it seemed like we were starting to win. That also helps. when you're feeling like you're winning, you're shutting down stores. So that really uh, invigorated me. I learned a lot. I learned to be on my own. I learned that I was somebody, you know, so, yeah. What do you think of as actually organizing? And what do you think of is that maybe stuff that masquerades as it? Like, what is organizing? Well, to me, and, you know, part of this was through reflection and guidance from some of my mentors Uh, To me, organizing is first uh, seeing a situation that's not good, and you know it's not good. It's a bad culture, and you disorganize it. Your first thing is you got to rip it up and dismantle it a little bit, or a lot. (laughs) In my case, it's been a lot. Um, and, and And then figure out if you could put it together differently. So to me, that's what organizing was, was a disorganizing of of existing relationships and making them different, Uh, not destroying relationships necessarily, but just reorganizing them differently so that people's relationships were different, so that they saw each other differently, so that they saw their capacity, so that they saw their humanity uh, differently. And that's a big bill. Uh, but that's what I saw yeah. as organizing. Yeah, I couldn't just go in and kind of like reform something. It was kind of like I always had to totally tear it down a bit and then build, but with the idea to build it up, not just to destroy it. Um, so that's what organizing yeah. was to me. 
And I was always invigorated by relationships, George. I've had people of all different types who've influenced me. And it's helped me to be involved in some significant change in our society because of those relationships, some of whom I don't like. I mean, I wouldn't go out and spend social time with them. (laughs) (laughs) Can you do organizing without an investment in deep relationships? I can't. (laughs) I tried it the other way, George. (laughs) Mm. I did try it the other way as a young man. I just wanted to have action. You know, I just wanted Mm. to, you know, I just liked that. You know, I needed that as a young person, scrubbing off energy, some of it useful, some of it not. But at the end of the day, I could never quite figure out how to attain a new contract with the union without really relating deeper with people. I couldn't mm-hmm. get the contract. I could, we couldn't right. win. You know, right. It was that simple. So I, I, you know, I dragged my ass up from the ground after a couple of losses and had to sit in somebody's living room and, you know, invent and challenge and cry, you know, do all the stuff ever after a big loss and come out on the other end winning in longer term. So that's, I got convinced of that. And I, and who convinced me was Fred Ross, who was a great organizer who never wanted any recognition at all. Can you say uh, who, can you share? I mean, I think there's a whole generation of organizers that doesn't know who Fred Ross is. Can you say a little bit about who he? Well, Fred Ross was, was originally employed by Saul Linsky on the West coast as his his big guy on the West Coast. And uh, he found and engaged with Cesar Chavez, which proved to be such a, such a beautiful relationship, you know? Uh, so he's the guy that mentored Caesar and, and mm. changed Caesar's life and made him really into an organizer. And they organized all up and down the coast. Chavez was a young uh, Pachuco from uh, San Jose, South Si Puedes, Get Out If You Can, was the neighborhood he raised up in. And Fred found him, had a house meeting with him, uh, and Caesar reluctantly, you know, as a young young guy, reluctantly started hanging around with Fred, and, and eventually they formed a, a farm workers union. Uh, yeah, so Fred Ross was that guy, and he remained Cesar's mentor and the mentor of many others, Dolores Huerta. I mean, you know, you know, he, he trained all those folks. And for some reason, he invested in me. I, I you know, I, I don't know why. <laughs> I really don't. I don't know. I was certainly no star. I mean, he's just a great man. I don't know how else to put it. You never thought about race with Fred. You never, hmm. he didn't give a shit. <laughs> I mean, hmm. he, he didn't really give a shit who you were in that regard. He cared about you. He really came across as a guy that just cared about you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? It's so funny. And, I I never yeah. met him, and I sense that from everything I've I've heard and know. So. Yeah, he's an unusual human being and a real uh, model, a real mo- role model without even trying to be one. Yeah, you know? uh, but he was—he believed in the fundamentals. I'll tell you that he'd drill you, you know, he'd drill you hour after hour. You know? 
Like How what might he drill down? you on? What would he drill you on? What's an example? Like personal meet. He called them personal visits, mm. which are what we call one-to-ones now. Yeah. Yeah, you got to get that personal visit, Stefan. You got to, <laughs> you got to, how many have you had this week? You know, <laughs> and, you know, any of them leading to house meetings? Oh, that's your problem. You don't believe in the house meeting. Okay. You're not going to build anything <laughs> like that. Let's go over your script again. <laughs> <laughs> but kind, though. I mean, it was never, he never yelled. Not at me. Never oh. yelled. But he was serious as a heart attack, though. You know, to be honest with you, George, I think he, more than anything, showed me that through that kind of caring, you could really develop if that's what you wanted for yourself. Mm. Like what I hear you describing about him, like you said, caring, like, uh-huh. but you're also describing somebody pushing you and, oh, yeah. and agitating, you know, agitating as an act of love, not to yep. beat you down. And I just yep. think seeing that as a form of investment in somebody versus uh, an affront, I just think, I mean, it's certainly how you took it as an act of love. Yeah. Well, that's, that's why I took it. (laughs) Right. You know? Yeah. Can you say, like, what were some key moments for you organizing for the farm workers in Florida? That's that's a big question. Well, I mean, there's a lot to that story, but I can isolate one or two things. Um, I'll go to California for this one. So we're in the lemons, right? With lemons, you know, in the summertime, it's deadly hot. You know, it got to be over 100 degrees in these these groves. And the grove is like where you have like, you know, thousands of lemon trees that all have to be harvested. Some of them are very difficult to, to climb and get up into because they're old trees. And the and the as we this term the low hanging fruit mm. that people throw around. Well, in that world, that actually meant something, because, <laughs> right? You know, because that determined how much you could get because you were being paid at a piece rate level, right. not an hourly wage. So we're in this contracts coming up. People are being treated real shitty. Uh, wages very low. You'd have to be a superman or a woman to be able to accumulate enough fruit to make any money at all. Uh, people were making average of maybe $10 a day or something. It was ridiculous. So the companies didn't give a shit because they were, you know, the best workers in the industry, right? Worked for Coca-Cola, who paid more than anybody else hmm. at $10 a day. So we're in this thing and the contract's coming up. And we figured, God damn, we'll never be able to win this damn thing. Why? Because the hourly workers, most of whom are white, and the equipment drivers aren't with us. They don't ever come with us. So we're complaining and bitching and moaning. Along comes this one white guy. His name is Charlie Woods. And he's with the VFW and a little bit clanny, like all his relationships were like with white guys who were part of the clan. But Charlie had an interest, and that was that the hourly workers didn't feel great either. Now, we didn't know that because we didn't relate to them at all, okay? Had no relationship whatsoever. Whites over here, blacks and Latinos over here, Vietnamese over there, Cambodians over there. So Charlie comes and he says, Stefan, 
uh, I don't know you, but I, I want you to come out to talk to the VFW. Here we are out in the middle of nowhere. This guy, is he setting me up? I mean, I, I was scared to shit. I'll be honest with you. I mean, I, yeah. I was scared to shit. What the hell does he want? You know, well, we want to see if we could get together. Some, some of these guys said, uh, Mr. Woods, but I know, you know, where's this VFW? Well, it's out in the middle of the woods over here. Uh, holy shit. Good Lord. So I dragged my ass out there. And, uh, Charlie introduces me and kind of protects me from this group of peering eyes you know, mm. <laughs> who are looking at me at the front of the room, the only black guy in any range. And I said, holy shit, I, I hope I can make it out of this motherfucker. <laughs> but there was enough interest that kept me alive there. And Charlie actually delivered a delegation of the white uh, hourly workers to meet with some of the black and Latino and Asian workers. And we negotiated a deal where they were going to say that they were on our side, as long as we fought for 50 cents an hour more for them. Hmm. And, and that was such an unlikely relationship wow. that got developed. And it actually developed, and the company got scared. Right. You referenced interests. Why is understanding interests so important? How can you get to know the other if you don't really understand what they're interested in? I always resented that people on the left, forget about what goofballs on the right said, but people on the left who would say, oh, all those white people voting against their interest. How would hmm. you know that? How would you right. know what their interest is? Yeah, mm -hmm. Why are you so arrogant to say that about another person who you've never spent one second talking to? I'm not interested in organizing if it doesn't involve interest, people's yeah. interest. I, I can't see that we'd go anywhere as a society without recognition of the other. Yeah. We're in trouble that. because of that right now. We're in trouble. Big, big trouble. What do you mean? Well, as a society, we're in big trouble because we don't respect the other. We We respect sound bites on Facebook and Instagram. You know, it, it's the one-liner. Who's the most provocative? Who's the Who can do the zinger and then get zinged back? Who's going to win these, these uh, gladiator fights over Instagrams and, you know, and uh, text messages? I mean, who, you know, if we're down to a society like that, I'm afraid of the polarization, George. I mean, I believe in polarization. I'm a big right. believer in it. I don't think you can win without it, but I, I'm not a believer in polarizing and keeping it there. I don't see any future in that. I see destruction in that, uh, and that's against my interest because I got kids and loved ones you know, who, who have to endure. They have to perdure mm -hmm. and have a decent life and a just life and a peaceful life if we can get there. But all this polarization hasn't helped us one bit because uh, there's no interest in depolarizing. Can you define or just describe for people the concept of polarizing and depolarizing? Like in the context well, like, of a fight, you know? Sure. It's like disorganizing and reorganizing. Yeah, the point of polarizing is to make it clear. 
It's an attempt to make it clear because we don't know any other way to do it. We are all right, and they are all wrong. Mm -hmm. Trump was all wrong. We were all right. We had all the right answers. He had all the wrong answers. So my interest is that I know that we're going to have to survive as a country, as neighborhoods in a country, uh, as a city in a country. And that there's no way we can do it if we stay polarized. We'll always be at each other. We'll fight each other. We'll, we'll kill each other, uh, either physically and literally or socially, economically, politically, because that's our only aim. And it's boring. It's boring. It's not noble at all. It's not in keeping with uh, people of value to want to just polarize and never come back to understand that we are like it or not, okay, <laughs> you know, we are here in a whole group of people and we're never going to like them all. I'm not, you know, I'm yeah. not romantic, okay, but enough just to keep going and, and to make things better. And, and I'm going to have to make some things better for them and they're going to have to make some things better for me. Uh, negotiation, governing. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, you can't govern half the country. I mean, that's not going to last very long. I'll tell you that. I, we we should all have enough sense to know that um, mm. half of the country one way, half the country another way. That's not going to work. <laughs> yeah. Somebody going to have to go. Somebody going to have to go. You going to have to figure out, do you want to wipe out those other people? Is that really what you want? Hmm. You may want to wow. wipe out Donald Trump, but don't don't wipe out all the people that follow him because they're not all right. bad. Right. Yeah, I was definitely taught how to you'd like polarize with the aldermen, but eventually you're gonna have to depolarize so you yeah. can get some shit done. And yeah, uh, and an some of the aldermen were assholes. Oh yeah, I mean, I <laughs> <laughs> when I was coming up, they all were. But um, right, yeah. Like a couple, of, like I want to like some quick hits that I think people need to hear from you. Like, what is a one to one? Simply put, it is the coming together of two people face-to-face, eyeball-eyeball, two uh, heads together trying to get to know each other, trying Mm -hmm. to figure out if there's anything that they could possibly have in common. Hmm. Uh, If there are any linking interests, is there any hunger and appetite driven by anger, driven by vision of what could be? A one-to-one is held with a leader, or when I say leader, I mean a person that's got relationships that they can deliver and have delivered, and uh, you're, you're talking to a person who's connected to others and has something at stake in those connections. Uh, you wouldn't want to lead your next-door neighbor who you loved and who will come out to something because you asked them to into a death trap or into some stupid strategy that didn't work. You wouldn't want to do that. (laughs) So when you're talking to another leader, you have to really be willing to listen. Uh, You have to be very curious. You have to be intent on not preaching and into uh, a way of enabling through your own action, their ability to share more and more of themselves. And that, you know, you realize that this this first 30-minute encounter 
is not going to be the last one. Mm. It's only a, a beginning to a, a potential relationship that you don't judge immediately. Some people say it takes a minute to learn, but a lifetime to master. Mm. Uh, you have to stay in it. You have to do thousands uh, and you never get perfect. Uh, it's no. no such thing. Um, so it's, it's an attempt at relationship. It's an attempt that you value uh, that more than you do the rally tomorrow at oh, City yeah. Hall Steps. No, I do think of it as an art when you, when you do yeah, one really, absolutely. really well. Uh, yep. And you, you could do five that you're really proud of and bomb the next one. Um, yeah, so absolutely. What happens in a good, like what is the magic that happens in a good one? I think it's a recognition and a respect that occurs. Mm. The recognition of another, that you recognize this is a real human being who's got something to, uh, to add uh, more than they do just so 50 people to bring to the demonstration that they themselves have a lot of richness in them. And they've started to share that with you. Um, and you can envision, uh, because you've seen that they've got vision to something and that they're not all about themselves, uh, hopefully. They're not all wound up in themselves so much so that nobody else matters. And so, you know, anger, passion driving them and a vision for what could be and a hunger to be connected, that they understand mm -hmm. connection. You walk away feeling energy, even sometimes in a, in a challenging way, uh, that you say, holy shit, what am I going to do with this guy? Oh, oh, man, this woman was so challenging. I'm not sure I can you know, meet with that kind of talent. That, you know, that, that she, you know, she's just so good. Oh, know? Now I got to go home and figure out what the hell, yeah. <laughs> you know, how am I going to get engaged this union local? that has got, you know, a hundred thousand members. What, why the hell would they want to relate to me? So it goes both ways. I mean, you know, can you keep each other's attention? Are you thinking together? So you get a sense of uh, connectedness. Right. One of the things I, I guess I worry about in this, kind of moment in organizing is that uh -huh. reflection uh. and digestion of what we're doing and how we're growing and what we're learning doesn't have the same amount of space. It's like, it's fighting to get in. You know, we have social media and emails to open and yeah. conference calls and all yeah. these things. I mean, can you talk about the value of reflecting as a part of being an organizer? I mean, I'll say this, to get a meeting with my supervisor when mm -hmm. I was coming up, I had to mm -hmm. submit a written reflection. Yep. Like, I wouldn't yep. get the meeting. Yeah. Which I, I would imagine sounds crazy to a younger organizer today, but, like, yeah. the meeting wouldn't happen. And I needed the meeting because my mentor knew more than I did. And right. I was trying to right. figure out what to do this next week. And right. So, and, and those reflections, they were a page. They were, I mean, they didn't have yeah. to be a book or anything, but it was not a place to talk about what I didn't like about the organization or complain about something. It was like, I'm wrestling with this. I can't figure this out. I did figure this out and we had to uh -huh. submit that. So it was, it was part of the culture. And right. I don't know. Was it part of the culture for you? Oh God. So it was so much a part of the culture, George, that my first assignment from Ed Chambers, who says to me, 
Oh, you're such a big shot. You're coming from the farm workers. You're such a big shot. I got people that organize circles around you and Chavez. I said, oh, fuck. Who is this guy? So I'm saying, he says, uh, I don't think you've reflected on anything. You've uh, For the last 10 years, oh, you, you appear to be a man who's just been in lots of action. You never knew what you were doing. So he says, I'll tell you what. I want to see you go and write a paper for me on what makes you you. How did you get to be who you are? And I said, holy fuck. How many pages should do? I don't care how many pages. 20. <laughs> 20. 25. <laughs> <laughs> so I go lock myself in a room and I started writing. And I remember writing that first page, you know, it was so hard for me to figure out, how do you talk about what makes you you? I went straight to mama and I started mm. writing about my mother. And I started writing, looked the first part. Oh, shit, I can't say that about mama. Crumple the page mm. up, throw it, in, <laughs> throw it <laughs> in the garbage. That garbage can got full, George. But right. then I got to a rhythm and, and came and wrote actually 25 pages of what made me me. Hmm. and uh, cited all the, the different people who had impactful roles in my life, which had never been done. I had never thought that deeply about myself. So I was so proud of my work that I took it to, in those days, Minuteman Press, mm -hmm. which is, I guess, like Staples or something now. You know, they print shit up and they laminate shit, put it in a three-ring binder and uh, go back and present it to Ed who promptly drops it on the floor and says, what, what the hell is this? I said, well, didn't you ask me? That wasn't for me. He says, that wasn't for me. I said, holy fuck. So that really drove home the importance of reflection, uh, that he had jarred me so much that it uncovered all this stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, that I had never taken any time to think about. And to this day, I've challenged other organizers to do the same thing. Not in quite the same way, but, <laughs> but, <laughs> but and I yeah. think it's been helpful because it, it, it formed little vignettes that people could begin to share with others about who they were and how they you know, became, you know, what their life was and what their center was. So. Yeah, sounds like a gift. Chambers. Oh, Columbia, it was. Really. Yeah, he, he. Well, I'm still talking about it 30 years right. later. So that says a lot. <laughs> Just because Ed Chambers is a name I certainly, you know, grew up hearing a lot about and was mm -hmm. still around when I was coming up. Right. Can you just say a little bit yeah. about who Ed Chambers was and why he was important? So Ed Chambers was the head of the Industrial Areas Foundation, and he uh, was really such a commanding kind of a figure who pulled no punches. And I must say that he is probably one of the first white men that really understood, in my view, understood black folk from a mm. from a pure sense of it as human beings. And him as a he was trained by Dorothy Day. Mm. Dorothy Day had a huge impact in his formation, a boy from Iowa who came out to the East Coast after he got kicked out of seminary at a young age and found Dorothy Day in uh, the Bowery and in Harlem dealing with all kinds of people. And so he was formed and shaped in that kind of service and understand and relationship. So 
that's who he was. I mean, he's a real bear to work with. I mean, not many people could work with him, but he sure taught me a lot. <laughs> that's yeah. all I can say. Taught me a lot. Like he didn't give a damn about what people thought about him. He just cared that, that you respected him. Yeah, yeah. He certainly didn't want to be liked, I'll tell you that. No, <laughs> sounds like some of my mentors. That was yep. not a it was not a yep. priority. Well, he was colleagues with some of your mentors. Oh, in a yeah. Way. I mean, they came out of the same era, had the same mentors. Oh, you yeah, know. yeah. What's it mean to develop a leader? And I say that I know there's a hunger out there in the organizing field to like be developing more leaders. What's it mean to do that? Yeah, I'm not, uh, I mean, to <laughs> me, it means a lot. I mean, because that's what I've kind of, you know, hung my hat on that accomplishment. To me, a big part of it is when you feel they are growing and they, and they feel they are growing. They're growing. They're getting bigger. They can think bigger. They think that they can do more. They can accomplish more. And they're willing to take some risks. They're willing to get into the trenches and, and build something that is real. And by that, I mean that they can deliver people mm-hmm. and they can win and they can stay in long enough without having to be patted on the back constantly because that's not real life, right? It's not a, that kind of romance. Yeah. So to me, that's you know, watching Johnny Ray Youngblood move from being a pastor all unto himself to one who could work with a Catholic bishop. Never mm-hmm. did it before, or a rabbi, or for that matter, as quiet as it's kept, uh, an imam from a mosque who's, who's a competitor in the same mm-hmm. neighborhood. Okay? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And now I'm working together with them. So to me, mm-hmm. development isn't that, it's not like, I have folly sometimes around these very detailed development plans that people come up with. I never had any of those. That doesn't make it right. But uh, Hmm. I I was always more interested to see, has this person, have they led an action yet? You know, Mm -hmm. have they designed anything that they ran without me in the way? You know, have they won something? Uh, who are they hanging around? Uh, who who mm-hmm. are they reading? Uh, you know, mm-hmm. Are they reflecting at all? Do they can they reflect? Can they have enough security in themselves to mm-hmm. be able to reflect and write about it? Even if they don't write about it, can they record a message or talk to somebody you know, uh, about something they're struggling with? Can they recognize that they don't have all the answers by themselves? To me. That's uh, a person that's got some relationships who's grappling mm-hmm. with some very, very tough issues and coming uh, about a way of dealing with them with others who they respect. Can they be in a collective? That to me, that's development over time. Yeah. Over time. Okay. <laughs> not, right. Not, right. This know, is not. Yeah. Yeah. Two months yeah. and you're in. Yay! This is not a sprint. No. <laughs> no, not um, at all. So it's yeah. it's a lot of things, but at the end, you know, you know when you've hit the sweet spot. Yep. And it's not just because of you. <laughs> no. It's a, a lot of things people have encountered, but you've been significant. You've you've had a, a real role. You've advised. You've coached. You've challenged. You've jarred. 
Uh, they've jarred you. I don't know of a leader that I've ever worked with and developed who hasn't jarred the shit out of me right. at some point. <laughs> no, it's a two-way relationship. Oh, right? yeah, it's... man. It's reciprocal. Yeah. If you don't get that, then you don't have much of a relationship. Yeah. So, yeah. Stefan, one of the things I've always appreciated about our conversations is when you reflect back, whether it's, you know, last year or, you know, 40 years ago, you're as likely to lift up names of people you developed as issue victories you've won. I feel like when you think about your legacy, that's that's a lot of what you think about. Well, you're right, George, because, you know, to me, the issue is always that person. Mm. It's always the leader. I mean, that's how I was trained. It was never about just the strike. It was about, well, who are these people who are putting this shit together? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what what are they going through? Uh, what are they becoming? And am I on a journey with them or just kind of watching as a spectator? What what What's my role? So it's always been about people to me. And people look at me, ah, oh, shit, we got to fight racism. We got to fight. Yeah, okay, I got it. <laughs> but we won't ever win if we don't have the right people who are challenging mm-hmm. and, and who can win and who got followings and who relate to others, who know that it can't be just all whites who fight the battle, can't be all Asians who fight the battle. It's only those who understand like King did, even like Malcolm did, that uh, you're not going to win anything, not in this country, unless you got some allies, that you know, muscular allies, uh, who, who aren't from where you are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> you can't bring it to that. Then don't don't have any fairy tales about utopia because it's not going to happen. <laughs> okay, well, okay. man, it's I feel like it's a real talk. <laughs> yeah. Organizers, we seem to have more axioms than about any any job out oh. there. You got a favorite? Yeah, never do for others what they can do for themselves. The iron mm. rule. Yeah. What does that mean to, to people that haven't heard it? Why is that so important? Well, it's tough. I mean, it means it's a tough reflection you have to have in yourself that are you doing for the just because you want this task done, right? And you, you're Mr. Do-it-all, right? But are you taking away an opportunity for, from a, another leader to do that thing and probably do it better than you would? <laughs> or not, or not, or Doesn't not. Matter. Maybe they won't. Maybe they won't. But don't, don't, don't take their muscular, don't take the development of their public muscles away from them. They have to exercise them. Why does Stefan at seventy have to have to run a meeting? Mm-hmm. Why would he do that? I mean, it's just all these right. people. <laughs> Don't do for them what they could do for themselves just because you want to show off or because nobody can do it like old Stefan can or, you know, or you because know, we're afraid to, you know, we hate asking yeah. or pushing people to do stuff. Right. Isn't that That's another right. reason? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Kind of a, oh yeah. You know, we're afraid of rejection. <laughs> you know. We don't want to trouble the other person. We don't. That's right. Yeah. Absolutely. But we're, we're, we're taking away all their abilities. Okay. Last question. If you were launching a new organizing training center tomorrow, what would be a few things that would be at the heart of it, especially in this moment? Wow. 
Well, an understanding that the first change has got to be in you. So I wouldn't invite anybody who wasn't willing to change. Didn't see that as central in the sessions that mm -hmm. we'd all have to do some changing. Hmm. And then the second part would be that uh, you got to love relationships and you got to understand one to ones. If, if you don't leave here with anything else, you got to leave with that. So that would be critical to me. And then this, uh, another thing would be, you know, as, as we've been taught, you and I, that uh, action is to organization like oxygen is to the body. So those are some of the things I'd want to leave people with. Mm. Connection, uh, love, power, right? Power and love, not just power. Power and love. To be able, poder uh, in Spanish, and uh, to, to be related. Both, they go together. It's not one versus the other, all mush or all tyranny. And, you know, <laughs> you know it's both and. Stevan, this was a true pleasure. It's exactly what I've hoped our conversation would be like. Uh, I mean, you are a real gem. I mean, you're a real special human being and a special organizer. Seriously, I like every time we talk, I feel a lot, a lot sharper and more inspired. So thanks for doing this. Well, thank you, man. That's reciprocal. I don't exactly hate you either, George. <laughs> okay, good. All right. I'll take that as a victory. The monuments to Stefan's organizing are people developed in ways that would not have happened if not for his arrival in their life. And those people he helped develop are a tribute to those who invested in him. People like Fred Ross, Cesar Chavez, and Ed Chambers. In this moment in which we need the craft of organizing to be at its best, who are you investing in? Helping see something in themselves that they did not see until you, the organizer, came into their life. It's a question, organizer or not, we should all ask ourselves, who are we investing in? Stefan Roberson cannot be found on Twitter, but he can be found in the neighborhood, if you know where to look. You can learn more about the work that Stefan is doing with Community Voices Heard at peoplesaction.org slash nextmove. This podcast was produced by People's Action and the Mashup Americans. It is executive produced by Amy S. Choi and Rebecca Lair. Our senior producer is Sarah Pellegrini. Our development producer is Melissa Lowe. Production manager, Shelby Sandler. Bye now. <laughs>